There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Nada Youssef, and you're listening to Health Essentials Podcast by Cleveland Clinic. Today, we're broadcasting from Cleveland Clinic main campus here in Cleveland, Ohio, and we're here with Dr. Aaron Gertz. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And Dr. Gertz is currently a hematologist at Cleveland Clinic Cancer Center and assistant professor in hematology and medical oncology at the Cleveland Clinic Tossic Cancer Institute. And today we're talking about leukemia. And please remember, this is for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to replace your own physician's advice. All right, so let's just start with very basics. What is leukemia? So leukemia can be a very fearful word, I know. Um, but there are, I think it's important to remember there are so many different types of leukemia. When someone comes to me as a leukemia doctor and says, well, what is leukemia? It's almost like I walk into Sherwin-Williams and say, I want some blue paint. You know, you look at the wall, there's all these paint chips of hundreds of different kinds of blue. So there, really, I think the key there is that there's so many different types of leukemias. But we can break this down into a couple of different simple groups. There's acute and there's chronic. So acute means something that comes on very quickly. It's generally pretty aggressive. Like if we don't treat it, people can pass away from it within days to weeks. There's also chronic leukemia, which means it usually comes on much slower. And even without treatment, patients can live years. These terms are very old. They date way back before we had any formal classification systems, you know, 50, 20, you know, 50 plus years ago. Um, more recently, we've started to divide them as well into myeloid and lymphoid groups, meaning that's the cell of origin. Are they from a certain group of blood-forming cells in the bone marrow or another certain group of blood-forming cells? So really, we can think about any leukemia with this kind of two-by-two table, acute versus chronic, myeloid versus lymphoid. Of course, within each of these groups, there's many other subsets of, of leukemias based on what types of immature cells we're seeing, what type of mature cells we're seeing, and, and all the other different features within the disease. But the basic breakdown is acute versus chronic, myeloid versus lymphoid. Okay, so when I start with the questions, just feel free to um, explain, you know, both categories. Because yeah. I, now I, the, the questions might be different for each one. Okay. But um, I want to know how it affects the body. Yeah. Um, what actually happens to your body when you have leukemia? So leukemia starts when some of your blood-forming cells acquire a mutation. A mutation in a gene, generally either that is important for the development of these cells, the growth of these cells, or the maturation of these cells. So this, these mutations will happen, and then the, blood, the ability for the bone marrow to form blood will become altered in some way. Either you make too many of a certain subset of blood cells, or their maturation is interrupted, or their ability to mature is interrupted, and you stopped making enough of these blood cells. And so usually the first signs and symptoms of this disease uh, are akin to having too much or too little of these blood cells in your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And things kind of stem from that. Your blood is so important. Mm -hmm. We often joke in hematology that uh, hematology or cardiology, you know, being here at the Cleveland Clinic, we always like to poke, you know, have a little fun with our colleagues over in the cardiology department. But we're like, well, the cardiology is, you know, they're just dealing with an organ that gets to pump the blood around because blood's the most important thing. Yeah. But it, it's within leukemia, you kind of think about it. All the symptoms and things that can happen from leukemia stem from having too much or too little blood. 
So if your blood levels become low, you often feel anemic. Anemic is another term for having too few red blood cells. That can lead to shortness of breath. It can lead to issues with heart failure even or kidney failure. Um, and people often report feeling very tired, fatigued, or run down. And that's often an early sign or symptom of the disease as well. Um, if you have too many white blood cells, and those white blood cells are very, very sticky, say they're very immature cells. Uh, in, for instance, if this happens in acute myeloid leukemia, uh, they can kind of clog up, clog up the blood vessels of the brain or the lungs and cause confusion or shortness of breath that way too. So there are many, many types, as you mentioned, uh, that exist. Can you talk a little bit about the different types? Yeah, sure. So the, the main categories, again, acute and chronic. Um, and then within acute leukemia, we often think of acute lymphoblastic leukemia and acute myeloid leukemia. Those are going to be the kind of two most common categories people talk about. Acute lymphoblastic leukemia are from the lymphoid cells. So again, that other kind of way we divide, divide up the leukemias. Acute lymphoblastic leukemia is the one we often think about in pediatrics. So there's really, if we look at the incidence across ages, you know, when the disease happens, there's a big hump in children, and then in, in middle life it kind of goes away, and then there's a second hump in adult life. So there, there, it's a disease of both children and older adults. Um, the lymphoid cells uh, often contain muta certain mutations that we can actually target with new therapies, which is really exciting, targeted therapies. Um, and the set of chemotherapies we use for that disease are different than the acute myeloid leukemia. If we look at acute myeloid leukemia, uh, again, these are acute leukemias that come from the myeloid lineage in the bone marrow. Uh, that tends to happen in older folks, not really so much in the young. So instead of two humps and when we're looking at age, it just tends to happen as we age. Uh, and really the average age of the onset of diagnosis is around 70 or so. So definitely a, a disease that's more common in older folks. Um, again, driven by mutations, and often a patient will present with too many white blood cells and too little red blood cells and platelet cells, and that kind of tips us off to what's going on and, and, and sets us down the path. Again, the reason we make these distinctions is because the treatment for these diseases is so different. The types of chemotherapies or targeted therapies we may use are very, very different. So which types of... Uh those with the leukemia, which one is the worst? I get this question a lot. Yeah. What kind is the worst? Is this, <laughs> if I'm going to get one, is this the one I want to have? Or is this one the really, really bad one? I get that question a lot. And, you know, it almost goes back that there's so many types of leukemia, even within very precise groups of leukemia. Say if you take acute myeloid leukemia, there's a whole bunch of types of leukemia, subsets of that acute myeloid leukemia. And it really depends on within that group. Mm -hmm. So if we take, again, just acute myeloid leukemia, Acute myeloid leukemias with a certain chromosome called inversion 16, we feel like that's a pretty good one. We can cure a lot of those patients with just chemotherapy alone. But if we take that same acute myeloid leukemia, if we look at the chromosomes of that acute, those cells, and if they have like a lot of chromosomal errors or, you know, errors in genes like, or in chromosome 7 or 17P in, in certain abnormalities, those are really aggressive. And chemotherapy will not cure those patients. And we want to think about different treatments. So even within a category of leukemias, there's a range. There are good ones and quote-unquote bad ones um, within that within those groups. So um, I know you mentioned how they develop, and you mentioned um, it could develop from bone marrow. Can you explain again um, how it develops some of that leukemia, yeah. the two different ones? Yeah. So leukemia all starts with a mutation. Leukemia is actually a form of cancer. I think a lot of people may not realize that. 
and all cancers start with acquiring a mutation in a cell. So we have a genome. There are 70,000 genes in every one of our cells. And every one of our cells has the same genome. And, and what makes your skin cell a skin cell and your, let's say, kidney cell a kidney cell is what genes are turned on and off. And there's a, a whole system that regulates a lot of that. And if we look in leukemia cells specifically, what has happened is there are particular mutations that happen in a or a small set of genes that not only change how the cell behaves, but also what other genes within the cell are turned on and off. And that one mutation or set of mutations leads to abnormal growth of those cells. Again, same for leukemia is all cancers. And that starts in your bone marrow. Your blood comes from your bone marrow. And so when a bone marrow cell, a particular, a particular cell we call a, a, a bone marrow stem cell, gets, this, gets a mutation of this nature in it, that ultimately will grow up to be a leukemia. So you can, you'll be able to detect it early? So that's a really interesting question. There's been a lot of focus now on this thing called CHIP, clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate prognosis. So clonal means that all the cells are the same. I don't know if you remember Star Wars at all, and they had the, the you know the Clone Wars where all you know they're all off of Boba Fett, right? They're all the kind of the, or his father Jango Fett, and they're all they're all identical genetically. And so if we look at these cells, they're all genetically identical or relatively genetically identical. So they're clones. Uh, hematopoietic means blood forming, so bone marrow cells. Indeterminate means we don't know, and prog uh, prognosis means prognosis. So what we're detecting in people who do not have blood cancers, do not have any diseases at all, we test their blood, we can find mutations in their bloodstream that can ultimately lead to leukemias. Not very common in younger folks. Like say you check the blood of someone who is 30, you're pretty unlikely to find that. But if you check the blood of someone who say is 80 and has no normal blood counts, no evidence of leukemia at all, in roughly 10 to 15% of those people will detect mutations that are common in leukemias. And there is a risk of developing a hematologic cancer over time with those folks when they have those mutations, roughly a percent or so per year. And we think that these chip states where we acquire a mutation in our bone marrow that's hiding in there, there's these clones, um, that could over time lead to this disease. And we think that's how a lot of the a lot of these leukemias happen, particularly leukemias like acute myeloid leukemia or a related disease called myelodysplastic syndrome. We think when it happens in younger folks, um, say, you know, children or people in their, say, 20s or 30s even, they probably had some sort of predisposition for it. Maybe one gene wasn't mutated, but was very susceptible to mutations. Like there was a pre-existing first hit. And then once a second hit or a true mutation was acquired, then the leukemia happened. Um, but for most people who get leukemia, it's actually because they've acquired a mutation in some of their bone, one of their bone marrow cells and blood making cells over the span of their lifetime. And that eventually, this chip thing, which eventually turned into a leukemia. So what organs are affected by it and yeah. can it spread? Yeah. So mainly the bone marrow, which is actually a tissue, not an organ, but it's a very important system. And so that's the first thing we think about. Again, when you get a leukemia, often the bone marrow is not able to make enough blood or at least effective blood. Um, and a lot of patients will see that have maybe a normal white blood cell count, but those white blood cells aren't acting properly and they can't fight off infection uh, like they should be doing. So that's usually the, one of the main things we see. Um, 
other organs and tissues certainly can be involved as a result of that. So if the blood cells are low or too high, you know, other organs can kind of get in trouble with this. But mainly it's a, it's, it has to do with the bone marrow's inability to produce blood. And hand in hand goes the immune system too, and that's the other key feature there. So the immune system often becomes weakened in these states, and people become susceptible to infections, which is a real serious complication of having a leukemia. Now, when I was searching this, I saw a lot of um, this lymphoma. Mm-hmm. People are wondering if leukemia and lymphoma are related at all. Yes, they are. They are. They're cousins. Oh, they're I would cousins. say they're kind of cousins. <laughs> um, so lymphoma is specifically a cancer of the lymph tissue. Um, so you have lymph nodes, say like in your armpits, your necks, your groin. The spleen is part of the lymphatic system, if you will. And so it's a cancer of the lymph system. Your lymph cells originate in your bone marrow. So, so, for example, a T cell or a thymus educated cell, it'll be born in your bone marrow, it'll circulate around your blood, it'll go to your thymus gland, which is usually more present in kids than adults, it'll get educated and then becomes a T cell, a part of the lymphatic system or part of the, the, you know, part of the immune system, the greater immune system. If a cancer happens as part of it, where the T cell is the predecessor, it often becomes a lymphoma. But you can also get leukemias of T cells too. So it's somewhat of an antiquated term to separate out lymphomas and leukemias. Um, I think the simplest way to think about it, lymphomas are solid, so they usually cause enlarged lymph nodes, solid masses, where leukemia is more in the bloodstream. It's liquid. It kind of flows around and pumps around with the blood. I think that's the simplest way to separate them out. There are some that you can't tell the difference. There's this thing called small cell um, lymphocytic lymphoma, or SLL, and then there's CLL, or chronic lymphocytic leukemia. They're actually the same disease, but they have two di- it has two different names, whether it's mostly in the lymph nodes or mostly circulating around in the bloodstream. Same disease, two different names. Makes it completely confusing. A lot of investigation to find out what your patients have. So let's talk about the early <coughs> signs of leukemia. Mm-hmm. Are, are there any? So certainly there are. Okay. Um, so there was a, some recent press around a patient that we had who... Um, thought they had a bug bite and eventually went and saw, sought out treatment and it turned out, well, it wasn't so much a bug bite but a manifestation of their acute leukemia. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who has a bug bite has leukemia or vice versa, um, but this, sometimes what happens is we are looking at a symptom of a patient for a completely different reason or something that's almost unrelated and we notice that their blood counts are abnormal. So that often could be a first tip-off. Uh, most patients who have leukemia feel tired. They may have fevers. They often feel, like I said, anemic because their red blood cells are low and they're not getting enough oxygen pumping around to their tissues and they feel just ugh, anemic. Yeah. Um, some patients will be thrombocytopenic, meaning their platelets are very low and they get a lot of bruising and bleeding. So those are probably the most common symptoms that happen in patients who have leukemia. But there's also a fair chunk of patients who... We just happen to find it on routine screening or, or just by happenstance, by checking their blood for a completely different reason. Particularly those patients with chronic leukemias. They can often be asymptomatic or not have any symptoms at all. Now, you talk quite a bit about genomics. And, um, well, is this a hereditary link to leukemia then? So that's always a question. And we actually here at the Cleveland Clinic have a molecular hematologic pathology board where we get together pathologists, molecular biologists, and hematologists, and we talk about different cases. 
where we've had a patient with a disease and we look at their, the mutations that are inside this using our, our in-house panel where we look at 62 different genes that are commonly mutated in these diseases. And we spend part of the time discussing, well, do we think there's a hereditary link in this particular individual? So we'll go through and see the mutations and other variants that may not be fully mutations but might be a little off. And we'll kind of look at the genomics that we have in front of us and say, well, should we refer this patient to genetic counseling? It's, it's, we don't really know how much is inherited and how much isn't. Certainly these things can run in families. Uh, older reports would say maybe 5% of leukemias were inherited and run in families, where 95 were sporadic or just popped up in individuals. Um, but there are emerging reports that say maybe that number is higher, that there are maybe even upwards of a quarter of cases uh, might be more hereditary than we think. So one in four even. Um, a lot of this work is being done by um, a collaborators of ours. Uh, one of our collaborators, her name is Lucy Godley, over in Chicago, and we've been working a lot with her to try to unravel some of the questions around around this. Is it more hereditary or not hereditary? But so, so it's really unclear because these these studies are really hard to do. So based on the pathology lab, that's when you would find out if that patient should be seeing a genetic counselor or not. Yeah, certainly we we do two things. Um, we take a very detailed history. We ask questions. So does anyone else in your family have a leukemia or lymphoma or a cancer? And we start taking, well, what, you know, is there any medical problems with your grandmother, your grandfather, your aunts, uncles, cousins? And we kind of try to do a really accurate family history. And that couples with what we see genomically inside of these leukemia cells. And we take that information together and say, boy, there's some family members here with some kind of questionable things going on. And there's these kind of mutations or at least variants of concern differences in the genome that we might want to investigate further and then refer the patient to genomic counseling. That makes sense. So are there risk factors that increase your chance of developing leukemia? And if so, what are they? Yeah. So for most patients, leukemia can almost be seen as a process of aging. Again, as we all age, we acquire these mutations in our bone marrow, that whole chip thing we were talking about earlier. But for some patients, there are uh, exposures that can increase the risk of developing leukemia over time. Uh, probably the most well-known one is a chemical substance called benzene. Uh, it's an industrial paint thinnery kind of compound, um, but also happens to be the most common carcinogen in cigarette smoke. Mm. And there is a clear link between benzenes and the development of leukemias. Ionizing radiation is another risk. So patients or people who are exposed to ionized, high doses of ionizing radiation can develop leukemias. I'm not talking about uh, you know an ankle x-ray when you twisted your ankle and you were 12. I'm talking about people who have either worked in the, the field of radiation um, or you know were involved with radiation disasters before there were a lot of kind of regulatory oversight with these things. And then lastly, chemotherapy. So our colleagues who take care of patients who have solid tumors have just done a, such a phenomenal job treating these patients and that they're living much longer. And they've been exposed to more chemotherapies, cytotoxic chemotherapies, genotoxic chemotherapies that can lead to mutations and ultimately cause leukemias. So say a patient has breast cancer and gets, you know, taxane or some other chemotherapy to treat their breast cancer, that ultimately could lead to the development of a leukemia because the chemotherapy that they got to kill the breast cancer also caused a mutation or damaged the DNA in some of the blood forming cells that led to a cancer. So that's another risk factor for developing leukemias. So do we understand yet the cause of leukemia besides aging? Yeah, so I, th I definitely think, you know, this the acquiring mutations as we age, mm -hmm. um, 
or just acquiring mutations by random chance alone. And then some of these exposures increasing that risk. Um, but it all comes back to down, down to, to acquiring a mutation that leads to abnormal growth of blood making cells. That's where it's coming from. I think the real key what we need to figure out going forward is determining earlier who's at greatest risk for developing these and perhaps increasing surveillance or maybe either intervening in the future. Uh, I think that's going to be the real key to, to lowering the incidence and, and, and improving along long-term outcomes with leukemia. Now, I know you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I want to ask you this question. Yeah. Um, it's often considered a childhood illness, as you mentioned, and the most common cancer in children under 15. But mm -hmm. can we talk a little bit about why that is, like to talk about adult versus kids? Yeah. So I think that one of the key factors here, too, it's almost a, a bit of perception, right? Le cancer in children is very uncommon. Cancer in adults is common. Because, again, no matter what tissue we're talking about, we acquire mutations in those tissues as we age. You think about skin cancer, right? Probably not going to get a lot of sun exposure if you're a one-year-old. But if you're, say, 70 and you live by the beach your whole life, you've probably got a lot of sun exposure. So your risk for melanoma or other skin cancers is going to be much higher. It's the same with blood cancers, too. As we all age, we're more likely to acquire these mutations in our blood system, uh, in our blood-making cells that can lead to leukemias. So cancers in general are uncommon in kids, less common, and then certainly compared to adults. So there's a bit of a proportion thing. Uh, why ALL? I don't know if anyone really knows the answer. But if you look, the peaks and, and the number of people overall getting ALL in kids versus adults, they're, they're pretty close. And in fact, actually, there are probably more people with ALL that are adults, especially older adults, than there are actually kids. It's just the fact that kids don't get too many other cancers and that it rises to the top of the list. Where in adults, you know, you think about it, you know, you hear these statistics like one in 13 women will develop breast cancer over the course of their life. On autopsy series, one in six or one in eight men have prostate cancer. That's usually not happening in children. So I think it's more of a, just a, a relative uh, increase in leukemias in children as opposed to an absolute increased risk in leukemias in children. So the reason it's so increased in children is it's a gene mutation, as you mentioned, they could be even born with it versus some risk are, factors that they didn't go through yet. Yeah, there's, there's probably some factor that's inherited that increases their risk. Um, they've inherited some, something we call a polymorphism often which is not a mutation necessarily, but a different code of the gene that makes it more susceptible to becoming mutated. Probably that's the case. Um, that, and then they go on with that polymorphism, and then something happens where the mutation actually happens and then causes the leukemia. But I think it's just, it looks like leukemia is a childhood disease because kids don't get too many other cancers, period. And it's just the most common of a kind of an uncommon situation. But then in adults, cancer is really common, particularly other cancers of, of solid organs, like, again, breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, where, you know, leukemia kind of slides down the list because compared to those, it's much less common. That's great information. Okay, so jumping into treatments. Yeah. Um, how do we diagnose leukemia? How do you yeah. detect it? So there's a lot of things. The, the big thing is really taking a look at the blood. Mm -hmm. So that is our first and most important clue. So we... We actually do something called a blood smear, where a drop of blood is placed on a slide, a glass slide, and we smear the blood across that, not with our fingers, but with another slide. And then it's preserved, and we look under a microscope. And that way we can look at the individual cells in the bloodstream, and that is our best clues to get started on a diagnosis. We can use other techniques like flow cytometry, 
where individual cells are put through a machine and we can look at the proteins on the surface of the cells to kind of tell us are they normal or abnormal. The lastly, one of the things that we use is a bone marrow biopsy. So a bone marrow biopsy is a way of going to the source. Your blood doesn't come from the sky, it comes from your bone marrow. So it makes sense to go and look there. I often use the analogy of if you're driving down the expressway and you saw all the Fords didn't have doors on their trucks, you'd probably go to the Ford factory and say, why aren't you putting doors on your trucks? And so when we see abnormal blood counts, we often go to the bone marrow to say, well, what's going on here? Why aren't you making blood? And that's how we often find these leukemias. And then in addition to that, we augment our diagnosis by looking at the chromosomes inside the leukemia cells through testing called cytogenetics. And then we also look and look at the mutations inside these cells using more molecular type techniques to make the diagnosis. So you mentioned earlier uh, chemotherapy can mm -hmm. cause leukemia. So how do you treat cancer? <laughs> it seems kind of silly to use chemotherapy to, see, to treat something that was caused by chemotherapy. Right. But in fact, we use chemotherapy. But I think one of the more other important points is that for some patients with chronic leukemia, uh, we simply watch them closely because they can live many years with this leukemia. If you look at a patient with essential thrombocythemia, which is a fancy way of saying the patient has too many platelets due to a mutation in a gene, uh, usually one of those genes that include JAK-STAT, JAK, uh, MPL, or calreticulin, those patients can have lifespans that approach the normal population, even without chemotherapy. So I think it's really important to know what kind of leukemia before we apply the treatment. And for many patients, we do observation. We just keep an eye on things, make sure it doesn't change or get out of control. But for some patients, we definitely have to intervene. I think there's been some really interesting examples of how medicine has been pushed forward through the treatment of leukemia. One example is a medication called uh, imatinib. So there's this type of leukemia called chronic myeloid leukemia or chronic myelogenous leukemia. It is caused by a specific mutation called the Philadelphia chromosome or BCR-ABL. Once the, this gene was identified, this abnormal chromosome, this mutation was identified, they did crystalline structures of it, and they saw that it made this protein, this tyrosine signaling kinase thing. And it, if you kind of imagine it like a Pac-Man, we then designed a wedge to stick in Pac-Man's mouth so it wouldn't work anymore. That drug was imatinib. It took a disease that without a bone marrow transplant, people universally died within three years of diagnosis. And it cured people with a pill. Unreal. Every targeted therapy developed in cancer medicine has been trying to live up to imatinib since. It really lurched the whole field forward in a very dramatic way. Um, you know, I could talk for hours on it because it's such an interesting story about how treatments are developed, how the FDA thinks about things, how advocacy groups got involved. It's, it's really an interesting story. Um, but I think it's a clear example of how leukemia was able to push the entire cancer field forward. Another thing is CAR T-cell therapy, which is very exciting. So CAR T-cell therapy is an immunotherapy. We know immunotherapies work in leukemias. Don Thomas, who was awarded the Nobel Prize for developing bone marrow transplant, um, realized very early on that it wasn't the chemotherapy that we were giving with bone marrow transplant, but it was the new immune system from somebody else that was going and killing the leukemia cells. So we knew from a very early time, you know, many, many years ago, that immune cells can be used to kill leukemia cells and other cancer cells too. But obviously bone marrow transplant comes with a lot of side effects. So one way of trying to get around that is we actually take the patient's own T cells, which is a type of lymphocyte, 
type of white blood cell, we take it out of them, we engineer and reprogram it, kind of lift open the hood, fiddle with the inner bits, put it back together, grow a whole bunch of them in a Petri dish. So we basically prime them to kill the, uh, uh, look for a certain protein on the surface of the cancer cell, grow the whole bunch of them in the Petri dish, and then give them back to the patient. So we're taking the immune cells, reprogramming them, growing a whole bunch of them, putting back in the patient to kill the cancer cells. And this, is, this technology has been absolutely amazing in treating acute lymphoblastic leukemia, particularly patients who have gone through several lines of therapy, including bone marrow transplant, and still have their disease raging on, uh, as well as lymphomas, and now multiple myeloma. Uh, and today, CAR T-cells, this technology, this therapy, is commercially available for patients with acute lymphocytic leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, as well as lymphoma. Uh, and we, we do it all the time here at the Cleveland Clinic. So then CAR T-cell is removing the, sen, the cell and fixing it, and then getting a bunch of them and putting it back into yeah. the body. Not the cancer cell, but an immune cell. Okay, and an And cell. basically, yeah, we're taking this immune cell that has failed to kill the cancer cell. I see. It's failed to kill the leukemia cell or the lymphoma cell. We're taking it out. We're reprogramming the inner bits to make it be this like little killer robot and we grow a whole bunch of them and we put them back in the patient they go around and they kill these cancer cells which is pretty amazing and then you were talking about uh, bone marrow transplant can you explain what that looks like and where do you get the bone marrow from does it have to be a family member how complicated is that so there are two types of bone marrow transplant autologous and allogeneic autologous you're getting your own cells back so you donate your own cells we freeze them down and then we give them back really the whole thing of that is we can give high doses of chemotherapy and then give you stem cell rescue. Chemotherapy that would normally kind of kill off your bone marrow and help you protect you against that effect. That's really used for lymphoma and myeloma. With leukemias, we generally use something called allogeneic transplant, where we take someone else's bone marrow and give it to the patient. That's because we really need someone else's immune system to go into the patient, look at the cancer and say, this leukemia is foreign, I gotta go kill it. Because the patient's own immune system isn't doing that. So yeah, we, we often look to family members first. So each sibling of a patient will be a one in four chance of being a match. And we're not looking at blood type, we're actually looking at immune type, or it's, it's a, the fancy term is called human leukocyte antigen, or HLA. So it's like immune type. You know, we have blood type ABO, where we can type red blood cells and find matches, but this is like we're typing the immune system, really. So a sibling will have a one in four chance of being a match. If we can't find a, if none of the siblings for a patient is a match, we'll look in the registry. So in the registry, there are over you know 20 million patients worldwide that have agreed to donate their blood and bone marrow. Then we can we can tap not only the U.S. registries but European registries and other registries around the world and find matches for patients. But that doesn't always work. And then we look to other sources to get these stem cells. Uh, we can actually we've now developed methods of using half match transplants. So each sibling be a one in two chance of being a half match. A parent or a child would be a half match. And then also umbilical cord blood. So we use umbilical cord blood to do these transplants because umbilical cord blood is so naive. It's so not exposed to the world that it can actually tolerate more mismatching when we look to type the immune system. Uh, It's more permissive, if you will. And so we can use cord blood as well. So this day and age, we say everyone has a match of some variety, and that the door to transplant shouldn't be closed because we can't find a potential donor. 
So I'm curious about that cord blood. Mm-hmm. How are you getting that? Does it have to be a family member again that's like pregnant? Or is it just like pregnant woman can just... Yeah, so anybody can donate their cord blood when they have a child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here in Cleveland, we have a very robust cord blood bank, actually. One of the, personally, I think one of the better ones in the nation. But I'm biased, of course. Um, and so when you, you know, you deliver your child at the hospital, you can say, yes, I'd like to donate my cord blood. So like here again in the Cleveland area, you would donate to the cord, Cleveland cord blood bank. Uh, and then they would come in, they would check it, and they would collect it all and take it off and freeze it down and then give it to someone they need, someone in need. I think this is different than some of the for-profit cord blood banks where you pay to store your own cord blood. To date, there's only been one case report of a person using their own cord blood back. So I think you know, I would be wary of some of these things. And, and certainly I think there's something about paying it forward. Donating your cord blood to the greater good and, and hopefully some, someone can use it for, for, for a positive thing in the future. In fact, when my first son was born, we donated his cord blood to the Cleveland Cord Blood Bank. And about a year later, the cord blood was actually used to do a transplant in a, another young child. Nice. So I, we're not privy to what happened, but uh, you know, I'd like to think that it did help some, some other child out. Very, very well said. Thank you. So is there a cure? And I know there's a million different types, so it's a really heavy question. But it, it, it is a heavy it's different. Curable. It is. It is definitely curable. Okay. Uh, meaning that there are therapies that exist that can lead to long-term maintenance-free remissions. Uh, bone marrow transplants certainly one of them for a lot of patients. There are some patients with CAR T cells where we think we can maybe cure them. Uh, certainly, the story with imatinib and CML, we're curing people with just a pill which is pretty amazing. And actually now we're starting to think about stopping the the matinib in some patients who have been really, really good missions. So they may not even need lifelong treatment, which is exciting. So definitely a curable disease. That's that's excellent. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And thanks again for uh, listening. And we hope you enjoyed this podcast. For questions about leukemia or to make an appointment, please call our Cancer Answer Line at 866-223-8100. For more information, please download our Leukemia Treatment Guide at clevelandclinic.org slash leukemia guide. And to listen to more of our Health Essentials podcast where some of our Cleveland Clinic experts come and talk about topics, make sure you go to clevelandclinic.org slash HE podcast. And for more health tips, news, and information from Cleveland Clinic, make sure you're following us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Cleveland Clinic, just one word. Thank you. We'll see you again next time. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.